The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. He is risen. And that is appropriate in that we want to look at the historical account from the Gospels in our Bible. I'd invite you now to turn, if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bible to Matthew 27 and 28, is which we're going to look at, of this account from Scripture, from eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Christ, to tell us what happened that eventful day 2,000 years ago. We call it Easter here in America for the most part. Easter, though, that word, you won't find that in the Bible. That may surprise some of you. The word Easter is not in the Bible. It's not a biblical term. It's actually a proper noun that came from someone else that actually had nothing to do with Easter. Uh, but that's uh, the title that has stuck. It's really Resurrection Sunday for Christians. And that's how we understand it. It puts the significance in the right place on the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And if you want to follow along, you can take notes uh, on the back of your bulletin if you'd like. But also we're going to be looking at key scriptures, mostly at Matthew 27 and 28, which was written 2,000 years ago by Matthew, who was a hand-selected disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ, a friend of the Lord Jesus when he lived in Jerusalem and in Galilee and Levi was his other name, uh, Matthew, and he was saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. He probably wasn't saved or a believer when the Lord Jesus called him to be an apostle. And the more he learned about Christ, the more his spiritual understanding was enlightened. And he came to embrace Jesus Christ, not just as friend, but also as Lord and Savior. And probably, oh, 10 to 15 years after the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit prompted and came upon Matthew, an eyewitness of Christ in his ministry and his death and resurrection, prompted Matthew to write this gospel for us. And the Holy Spirit of God has preserved this book for us for 2,000 years. And it is absolutely trustworthy and an actual historical eyewitness account of what happened to the Lord Jesus. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he lived to be 33 years before he died, and about three of those years at the very end were given to public ministry, where he actually went out and talked and proclaimed and did miracles, formally as the Messiah. And at the end of his three-year ministry, he knew he was going to die. That's why he came. He planned to die. It was a necessary death. We'll talk about that. But at the end of his three-year ministry, he asked this very important question to his apostles just before his death. He asked them, Who do people say that I am? He had been doing miracles for three years. The entire nation of Israel heard of Jesus. They'd seen his miracles, maybe even got healed by Jesus. So many of them were beneficiaries of his great works and heard his teaching. So there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people, if not over millions, who actually had heard Jesus, seen Jesus. And at the end of his ministry, Jesus asks the apostles, Who do people say that I am? Because Jesus knew just because they were exposed to Jesus, his teaching, or saw him, Jesus knew that people didn't always make the right conclusion about who Jesus is because he is totally unique. He is distinct. He's not just another human being. And so that pressing question that was so important when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And you know what? For 2,000 years, people have been asking that question. Every year, it's the perennial question of all questions. Who is Jesus? Typically, it's asked like this today in America. It's, who was Jesus? So predictable. Every year around uh, the holidays, Christmas and 
Easter, you can pretty much bank on it. You're going to see some special program on television, whether it's uh, 60 Minutes or CNN or Eyewitness or whatever it is, or some magazine come out, Time Magazine and U.S. News and World Report. Just keep doing the same story over and over and over again. They've been doing it as long as I've been alive. And every year during Christmas and Easter, they ask the question, not who is Jesus, but usually it's who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? I'd like to reframe the question, not who was Jesus, who is Jesus? He is still alive. And Matthew 27 and 28 is a testament to that reality that he's not dead. He is alive. He is risen. Hence the title of the sermon there, the risen Christ, the one who is still alive. And in Matthew 27 and 28, we see God's explanation of the meaning of Easter or really the meaning of Resurrection Sunday or why this day matters and why it is important. And whether you're a Christian or not, this day is important for you. Whether you're a believer or not or born again or not or believe what it says, it has an impact on every single one of us. It's relevant to every single one of us. And we're going to see some of that as to why in Matthew 27 and 28. So let's go ahead and look at... uh, the story, and I want to give an overview, mostly giving attention to chapter 28 on Resurrection Sunday, 2,000 years ago, but leading up to it even in Matthew 27 regarding the death and the burial of Christ, because that is part of the gospel story. So let's go ahead and look at it together. I'm going to start reading in Matthew 27, 57 and following. And so on Friday night, Jesus was crucified. He was hung on a cross. There were huge nails hammered into his hands, into into his feet on a cross out in public. He was executed as a guilty criminal who had supposedly committed treason and the worst treason of all treasons. Hence, he was condemned to death by capital punishment, hanging on a cross. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of all sinners, according to the Roman government. And so Jesus was crucified, killed on a cross on Friday He had another person on his left and another person on his right who were also crucified with him. They were guilty. They were sinful men. The Lord Jesus had done nothing wrong. But he died nonetheless on the cross, and he hung there probably for about six hours, the best we could tell from the Scriptures. Somewhere in the afternoon before the sun came down, it began formally to be the Sabbath, which was the most important time of the week for the Jews before Sabbath began. Jesus' body is taken off the cross on Friday. He's going to be buried, and he'll be in the grave Friday, part of, uh, part of Friday, all day Saturday, and then part of Sunday, three days in the grave leading up to his resurrection. So that's where we pick up the story is where Jesus is now dead, and he's taken off the cross. And at verse 57 in Matthew 27, it says, When it was evening, just prior to when... Sabbath begins on Friday evening. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. And Joseph took the body of Jesus and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he laid it in his own tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And Joseph rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. 
Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did it as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." That is the biblical account of the resurrection story of Jesus Christ. At least one account. This is Matthew's account, an eyewitness. And John also wrote an eyewitness account in his gospel. And then Luke and Mark also wrote gospel accounts. And many similarities to all of them. They all attest to the physical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and many other details. We're going to look at Matthew's perspective. And through this, as we're going through, starting at verse 57 of 27, I, I really want us to over and over again answer that same question of, who is Jesus? And here in the resurrection story, this question is answered many times over. The answer to the question, who is Jesus, is not simplistic, like the world many times would offer. He was a, he was a social worker. He was, Jesus, he was a healer. Or he was just a great prophet. Or more recently, it's, he's a, he was a community organizer. Or sometimes people say he was a, a helpless victim. And on and on the interpretations go, many times very superficial and shallow. What we're going to see from the text of the Bible, it's not a shallow answer at all. It is multifaceted. It is very complex. 
absolutely amazing because Jesus was unique. He was distinct. He is supernatural. Let's go ahead and look at it. Answering the question, who is Jesus from this resurrection story? Starting in Matthew 27, verse 57 to 61. And answering the question, who is Jesus? Well, this portion of Scripture and another portion of Matthew 28 say that Jesus was the suffering servant. Very important. Sometimes that means nothing to us, but 2,000 years ago, to any Jew who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, they knew what suffering servant was. Suffering servant was a formal title of the coming and promised Messiah. And promised for almost 4,000 years that one would come who was unique, who was God's Messiah, who was God's Christ. Many things about him. He would be a political leader. He would be having supernatural features and the nature of deity himself. But also, one thing the Jews didn't understand is that the, the, the Messiah would be a suffering servant. And the apostles had a hard time understanding that, that the coming Messiah would be one who suffers, who came in humility first. And if you have your finger, you can turn to Isaiah 53, which is one of the greatest portraits of a prophecy made 700 years before Christ that predicted and showed in detail how Jesus or the Messiah to come would be a suffering servant. And Jesus fulfilled everything regarding the details of Isaiah 53, mostly in his first coming. And he fulfilled it in his role as suffering servant. This was a huge stumbling block to the Jews of Jesus' day, especially to the Jewish leadership. They were expecting a Messiah not to be the humble servant or the suffering servant. They expected this uh, glorious, majestic, bright and shining, conquering political king riding in on a white stallion with a sword in his hand, conquering the Romans and all of their enemies. And yeah, that's part of it, but that's the future. What they missed was the suffering servant component of Jesus' ministry was also taught clearly in Scripture. And they missed that. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to believe it. They didn't want a suffering servant. That made no sense in their mind. It also didn't accomplish their materialistic ends for the most part for the Sadducees and Pharisees. They wanted nothing to do with the humiliated, suffering, dying servant. So they rejected all these prophecies about Jesus, like Isaiah 53. Today, a common Orthodox Jewish person would reject Isaiah 53 Usually, typically, they don't even want to read it or study it because it's undeniable about who it's referring to, the coming Messiah, but they want nothing to do of a suffering, dying Messiah. But here's just a snapshot. I don't want to read all of Isaiah 53, but just a couple of verses. And you can keep your finger there. We'll refer to it later as well. 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah the prophet predicted this about the coming Messiah. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53 Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verse 7, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Look back at verse 3 in that same chapter. He was despised and forsaken of men. They had people, this predicted that when the Messiah came and re, when the Messiah revealed who he was, that for the most part, the crowds, the masses, the majority of people would despise him and want nothing to do with him. They would forsake him. They would reject him. Jesus fulfilled that as the suffering servant 
And it climaxed at his trial when they cried out for his blood, crucify him, crucify him. Those were the masses of people that were shouting that to Caesar. Those were the masses of people, the same people who had been beneficiaries of the miracles that Jesus had done for three years. Unbelievable. And little did they know that they were actually fulfilling prophecy, that they would despise the Messiah of Isaiah 53. And Jesus came as the suffering servant, going back to Matthew 27 Here in 57 through 61, you have evidence that Jesus died, that he was killed, that he was crucified. This is tangible historical evidence that he was rejected by the Jewish people. In fulfillment of Isaiah 53, in fulfillment of Psalm 22, that predicted that his hands and his feet would be pierced as the suffering servant. A thousand years before Christ was born, that was predicted that he would be pierced in the hands and the feet. So clearly, many times in the Old Testament, it predicted the Messiah would come, he would be great, he would be a savior, but he would also be a suffering servant servant rejected by his people executed killed that was the suffering servant and jesus knew that role he assumed that role he welcomed that role he even proclaimed and announced that role that he was the suffering servant that he came to die he was born to die he had to die he needed to die in fulfillment of scripture and so it says in verse 57 After he died and was hanging on the cross, and as I said, he was probably on the cross for at least six hours that day. Finally breathed his last at the very end of those six hours, hanging on the cross. By the way, Romans invented crucifixion, they believe, historically. Romans were pagans. You won't find crucifixion in the Old Testament under the Jewish legal system. You'll find hanging on a tree, but... Crucifixion, the way it was done to Jesus, we believe was invented by the Romans. And it was typical that crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals, those who committed the most heinous offense. And here's Jesus, the spotless lamb, who is killed and executed with the worst possible conceivable form of capital punishment. And the Romans would typically crucify somebody and do it publicly to shame them so that all would continually walk by and see them hanging there in anguish and agony until they died. And then they'd actually leave them on the cross for days and days and their body would rot and be eaten by the animals for more further humiliation. And times even after a week, the body finally then and only then would be taken down. Well, not so with Jesus, the blessed Savior. He had to fulfill prophecy. He had to die and go into the grave on the day of Passover in fulfillment of Scripture. And so God intervenes supernaturally to ensure and make sure that that happens. So it's amazing. Typically, they wouldn't let uh, someone who committed high treason off the cross on the same day of their crucifixion, and let alone entrust them to Jewish people. These are the Romans in charge of this execution. So God intervenes supernaturally, the Father does, to fulfill Scripture as Jesus is the blessed Lamb who died for the sins of the world. And so when it was evening just before the Sabbath... There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also became or had become a disciple of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, this man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. So that was a a bold and courageous move on Joseph of Arimathea's part to go to Pilate. A couple of reasons why this is so significant. As I said earlier, typically if somebody committed high treason and they were executed, you don't dare think of asking and requesting they be taken down on the same day. Also, if you're a Jew, you don't ask the Roman governor if you have the right to take the body down of a criminal just executed for high treason. 
Also difficult for Joseph to make this request because he would have to publicly expose himself as one who actually cared about Jesus because he wants to bury Jesus' body, tend to it out of his love, devotion, and loyalty for Jesus as Savior and Lord. And the reason that was a problem is because Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin. That was the ruling Jewish body of the nation of Israel. The Sanhedrin typically had 70 members in it. These were the highest, most uh, elite and prestigious religious leaders of Jerusalem and all of the religion of Israel. There were only 70. Many times they were appointed by birth based on your lineage, not because you're spiritual or love God. As a matter of fact, it was the Sanhedrin, these 70 members spearheaded by Caiaphas and another high priest who hated Jesus, plotted his false trials and executed Jesus. The Sanhedrin, for the most part, rejected and hated Jesus Christ. They are his enemies all throughout the Gospels. So it was the Sanhedrin who despised Jesus, responsible for his death, his false accusations. And it keeps talking about the Sadducees, the Sadducees, the Sadducees. And collectively, we know that's the Sanhedrin. And all the while, we're thinking up until this point, that's all of the Sanhedrin. They all agreed. They were all in sync. All 70 members agreed that Jesus must die, that Jesus is a deceiver, that Jesus is a false prophet. Until now, where Joseph who is a Sanhedrin member and all the while in all these secret meetings and all these false trials and he's listening in. And there's a war in his soul about who Jesus is and the Spirit of God is tugging at his conscience and he's got a battle, his allegiance to the Sanhedrin that he was affiliated with and his loyalty to God about what he knew was truly right. And this comes to a fulfillment and fruition here where Joseph now exposes himself as a follower of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the other Gospels, I think it's Luke 23, says that Joseph of Arimathea came and requested the body of Jesus for he was a secret disciple. There it is. He didn't want to be known. He didn't want to be exposed. Why? He'd be kicked out of the Sanhedrin. That's why. He even risked his life. And so now he doesn't care anymore. His Savior was put to death unjustly. His Savior's body needs to be tended to especially in light of the coming Sabbath. And so God uses Joseph of Arimathea. By the way, Luke 23 calls Joseph a good man. A good man. Have you ever heard anybody say, uh, nobody's good, you can't say anybody's good? Well, Scripture does. Scripture calls Joseph a good man. That doesn't mean he was born without sin. It doesn't mean he's sinless. He was good because, get this, God made him good. Because Luke 23 says Joseph was a good and righteous man. Why is Joseph Arimathea now considered good the time of Christ's death is because he came to understand who Jesus was. He came to believe in Jesus, was a disciple. And because of his faith in Jesus Christ, God made him righteous. He made him good. His sins are forgiven. He's now in the family of God. And if you're a Christian, guess what? God looks down from heaven on you and on me and says, you are good. Isn't that amazing? No, I'm not God. I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner, or at least all my family members say I am. No, if you're a believer in Jesus and a true disciple, you are good. And the reason you're good is because God made you righteous through the work of Christ. And that was true of Joseph of Arimathea. He was a good and righteous man. He was looking for the coming of the kingdom. He was a secret disciple. And he abandons all of that out of love and affection and loyalty to Jesus Christ. And he goes public. He doesn't care. I need to take care of my Lord. And so he does. Became a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus boldly, courageously. And then get this, Pilate ordered the body to be given to this Jewish man. Amazing. It's the sovereign work of God. Why? Because Pilate knew. Pilate, in that false trial, the mock trial, actually there were six of them. 
And Pilate was pretty much overseeing all six short, false mock trials. And Pilate, again and again, after hearing the evidence, he said repeatedly, I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault. He is innocent, is what Pilate declared publicly. No doubt Pilate's conscience is bothering him up to this very point, maybe to appease his conscience, but also in the sovereignty and the provident grace of God, Pilate decides to give the body of Jesus, this criminal of the worst order, into the hands of Joseph of Arimathea, and so God can fulfill his purposes, getting the Savior in the grave on Friday on the Passover in fulfillment of Scripture. Absolutely amazing. So Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in clean linen cloth. Another one of the scriptures tell us that Nicodemus helped him. Nicodemus was another uh, leader of the Jews who over the course of probably three years came to believe in Christ and probably one of those secret disciples and now is abandoning all for his love for Jesus. He doesn't care anymore. He's going to help Joseph give the proper burial to the Lord Jesus. And by the way, Joseph being a, a member of the Sanhedrin and Nicodemus being a leader in teacher of the Jews, they both had the Old Testament memorized, or at least probably the first five books. And they knew Deuteronomy 21, verse 21 and 22, that said if anyone is executed on a tree, that's not crucifixion, but if they were just hanged on a tree, they were not to be, their dead body was not to be left overnight on that tree. That was a violation of the Mosaic law. And so uh, Joseph and Nicodemus, they want to honor the Mosaic law. So everything about the life of Christ is always in fulfillment of the Mosaic law, not undermining it or abandoning it, but fulfilling it. And here's another fulfillment. The Mosaic law would be fulfilled. His body wouldn't be left hanging on a tree overnight and also that he would be taken care of before the Sabbath so that they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath, tending to his body. Verse 59, And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and they laid it in his own... Oh, and they laid Jesus' body in his own new tomb. Here's this tomb that had never been used. By the way, scriptures tell us that uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a very rich man. And depending upon your wealth in those days, that depended upon what kind of a grave or tomb you could buy or invest in. We can relate to that today. I don't know if you've looked into coffins lately and plots in graveyards. I cannot believe how expensive it is. So I just tell my family, bury me in the backyard. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Save the money. Go on vacation. It is unbelievable. And that was also true. 2,000 years ago, depending upon your social status, if you were poor, you know, you'd be buried, who knows where? Yeah, literally in the ground somewhere or in a wooden box. And for the rich folks like Joseph of Arimathea, he had a place picked out, prime real estate, prime huge massive rock was hewn into that rock. We're talking hours and hours and hours of very difficult labor to actually cut into that rock and make a custom grave. Those graves still exist 2,000 years later in Israel. I've been there. I've seen it. I've seen graves that they have that are 2,000 years old. And they would cut, rich people would cut into rocks and they'd create this grave-like tomb with sometimes with shelves made out of rock where they would lay all the members of the family and then cover the hole with usually a huge, massive, round, rolling stone that was set up on an incline and it was time to cover the grave hole. It would roll down so that it would literally take five, ten, maybe even more strong men to remove the gravestone that covered the hole. That is the exact kind of grave that Joseph had prepared for himself, his family. He gives it all up for his blessed Savior. Never been used. Pristine. How appropriate for his blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he laid Jesus in his very own unused tomb, which he'd hewn out in the rock and 
he rolled a large stone, massive stone, against the entrance and rolled it down and covered up the hole and would keep robbers and animals away from the body. Then he went away from the tomb. Verse 61 says that Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. So here are the two women watching this, watching Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus. Why is that important? Because they were all Jewish people and it's important that Matthew wrote this down. Verse 61, it seems kind of like a meaningless, parenthetical, irrelevant note. But all these Jews knew that according to the Mosaic law, truth, legal truth, binding truth, spiritual truth had to be validated through the testimony of two or three witnesses. God knew that there were people that would deny that Jesus actually died on the cross. God knew that people would come along and say that Jesus actually was never buried. Did you know there are religions very well known today here in America that part of their theology, they say they believe in Jesus, but they say that Jesus was not executed. Jesus actually didn't die. They try to tell us that today. He didn't die at the cross. Well, yes, he did. That's the eyewitness of Scripture, and it's the testimony of two or three witnesses. You've got the eyewitness of Joseph. You've got the eyewitness of Pilate, the legal governor, who already declared Jesus dead in one of the other Gospels. You've got the eyewitness of Nicodemus. You've got the eyewitnesses of these women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary, who also are going to be the first eyewitnesses of his resurrection from the dead. That's why these women are mentioned there. They were the, some of the first to see him die and buried, and these women are the first to see him risen from the dead. Reliable eyewitnesses that, yes, just as God recorded, Jesus died for sin, was buried, and rose again on the third day. That is the Christian gospel. That is the good news. So from this passage right here, who was Jesus? We see that he was the suffering servant. Jesus had to die and be buried. Let's go on to the next thing. What else do we know about Jesus, who he is? What's verse 62 and 66? This is kind of a startling one. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the feared judge. He's the feared judge. Who is Jesus? He's the hated judge, actually. He's the hated judge. Do you know that people hate Jesus? They do. We don't hear that often. And you don't really hear people articulate that very often. It's actually a very rare and brave soul that would come out and verbalize and say, I hate Jesus, can't stand Jesus, I despise Jesus. Although we did see that professor at that Florida University two weeks ago who had the students write the name of Jesus on a piece of paper, put it on the ground and stomp on it. That's really rare. Most people would say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is cool, Jesus is hip, or like the 60s, 70s rock song, Jesus is just all right with me. Most people would say, yeah, Jesus is okay. You know what the truth is? When people get to know who Jesus really is, the Jesus of Scripture, most people don't like Jesus. Jesus makes actually most people uncomfortable. And it's still true today. People will talk about Jesus superficially. Boy, but if you want to start talking about the details of who he is, oh, i got to go. They get very uncomfortable. They want to change the subject. Hey, let's talk about evolution. No, I want to talk about Jesus. People hate Jesus. You know what? That was not a surprise to Jesus. He was not caught off guard by the fact that people hated him, rejected him, despised him, mocked him. He he knew that was going to happen. Um, I'm thinking of John chapter 7. I want to read this. If you've got your Bible and you can flip to John 7, you can see this. So who is Jesus? He was the feared judge. 
Who was Jesus? He was the hated judge. He is the hated judge. Well, maybe you're saying, no, I, I don't hate Jesus. I love Jesus. That's awesome. Christians should love Jesus. As a matter of fact, Christians are the only ones who actually can really love Jesus in a biblical true sense of the word. If you're not a Christian, you don't really love Jesus. Because it's black or white. Jesus was dogmatic. You're either for me or against me. And you're for me for the right reasons. For who I truly am and what I require. And when people typically hear about who Jesus is and what he requires, they, th- they say, no thanks. And that's why in John 7, Jesus made this prediction. It was a prediction about the reality of when Jesus was ministering then in John 7. Also, it was true about some of the brothers in his own family, but it was also true about the crowds he was ministering to. And it was also true about what would be true of the world for the next 2,000 years and on and on until he returns again. In John 7, verse 7, Jesus said, to his disciples, he said, the world hates me. Wow. That's why I said, who is Jesus? He is the feared judge or the hated judge. The world hates me. Every time Franklin Graham gets on CNN or one of those TV shows and all he wants to start talking about is Jesus, <laughs> the announcer gets very uncomfortable and doesn't want to talk about Jesus. People are like that. Jesus said, the world hates me. And Jesus doesn't just leave it there. He interprets. He tells us, well, why do so many people hate Jesus? Jesus, why do they hate you for those that do hate you? Some will love you. A few will love you. A minority will love you. Jesus said, few there be that find it. There were 70 Sanhedrin members. Few found it. Joseph of Arimathea. The way is narrow. Few But most will hate, most will reject, most will despise. Well, the reason is, Jesus told us, the world hates me because I testify of the world that its deeds are evil. There it is. Yeah, Jesus went around teaching gospel truth that liberated and set people free. Jesus went around and talked about the kingdom of God. Jesus went around and did miracles. Jesus went around and fed people. But you know what else he did? The most important thing he did is he told them about their own soul. He diagnosed them spiritually and he said, you are sick with sin. You are evil. You need to repent and turn from your sin and be forgiven. And you can only do it through me as Savior. You must bow the knee to me as Savior and Lord. That is the only way to be forgiven. That is the only way to have a relationship with God in heaven. That's what Jesus said repeatedly. And every time he did that, the crowds would get angry. And especially the Jewish leadership. They they would mock him publicly. As a matter of fact, sometimes they picked up stones to try to stone him to death on the spot, publicly, without a trial. That was illegal. It didn't matter. They were so enraged by their hatred and disdain for him. And all the while, in light of this rape, he's just fulfilling prophecy. Psalm 22, a thousand years before, said that he would be despised by people. Isaiah 53, 700 years before he was born, said that he would be rejected, despised by people. And why is that? Because Jesus came to point out our sin, which people don't like, but he also wanted to save us from our sin. And that's how we are. That's how we react naturally, don't we? As sinful people, our natural reaction, when somebody tries to tell us that we are wrong, immediately 
We want to be what? We want to be defensive, right? At least I know I do. Defend myself. That's how we are as, as humans. But if you allow the Spirit of God to work on your heart and bring conviction and humility and you submit to the truth and after your self-defense mechanisms go up, then in truth you can respond positively and knowledge, yes, I admit, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I am a sinner in the need of grace, in the need of forgiveness. And God, you're the only one that can forgive me. I can't forgive myself. Lord Jesus, you are the only one that can set me free from my sin. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross as my substitute, rising again from the dead as Lord of lords to provide a way of salvation for me as a sinner. And people who actually believe that and embrace that will be saved and adopted into the family of God. But most people, when they hear that message, that their deeds are evil, they resist. They reject, and as a result, Jesus is a feared and hated judge. So it goes on, go back to Matthew 27. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the day of preparation was Friday, where they prepared for the Sabbath on Saturday. So now on the next day, it's now Saturday, Jesus is still in the grave. Day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. Chief priests are the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. So that's the chief priests minus Joseph of Arimathea now. They've lost one. Gathered together with Pilate and they said, Sir, these are Jews addressing Pilate who was a Roman. We remember that when he, Jesus, was still alive, that deceiver, see their disdain for him. Jesus was the embodiment incarnate truth. They call him a deceiver. They're just seething with hatred for the Holy One. When he was alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, uh, Pilate, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, See, he's risen from the dead. And this la the last deception will be worse than the first. We don't want to be subjected to another deception of Jesus. The first deception of Jesus, they believed, was Jesus calling himself Messiah. And part of that deception was that he did amazing miracles, which they couldn't deny. And the deception was he did miracles in the power of Satan. They didn't deny the miracles. And they didn't want to see another deception happen. Having people believe that he actually rose from the dead. And so what they're requesting of Pilate is they're asking for some Roman guards to surround the tomb. It is very likely that they had their own temple guards from the temple who were Jewish police guarding the tomb at this point, not Roman guards. So there were guards at the tomb and probably not Roman guards, probably Jewish temple police guarding the tomb that the Sadducees were in charge of and had authority of. And that's why on the day of resurrection, it says when the guards fell over and went and reported to the, the guards went and reported to who? They reported to the chief priest. They didn't report to Pilate or Rome. They were probably under the jurisdiction and authority of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So they're asking, in addition to their own temple Jewish guards, probably asking for Roman guards as well. It's very possible. And look what Pilate says. Uh, Pilate said to them, yeah, you have a guard. You, you have your own guards. You have, you have temple police. Go ahead and use them. Utilize more if you want. I don't care. Put as many guards as you like. No problem. So Pilate does concede to a degree. He says, go make the tomb secure as you know how. Good luck. Verse 66, and then they went and made, they made the grave secure along with the guard. They set a seal on the stone. And so now who knows how many guards are guarding this tomb? Could be several. Probably with weapons, some sort. That's on Saturday. Now Sunday, Resurrection Sunday comes. So let's look at verse 
28 or chapter 28 verses 1 through 7. So not only is Jesus the suffering servant and the hated judge in Matthew 28, 1 through 7, we see that Jesus is the living Christ. He's the living, or actually he's the living Savior. He's the living Savior. He's in the grave on Saturday. Now look what happens, verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, now after Saturday, it is now Sunday. It's Sunday morning. It's early Sunday morning as it began to dawn very early, the earliest time of Sunday. As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So the women are first at the grave. The apostles aren't there. They're still still hiding in fear. But these women have great courage. They're moved by God providentially to be the first witnesses of Christ's bodily resurrection. They're there at the break of dawn on Resurrection Sunday. Their intent is to anoint his body. They can't get in there because they don't have access because of the huge, massive stone that has been rolled in front of the tomb. Verse 2 says, And behold, and get this, an unbelievable miracle, a severe earthquake had occurred. This is not a natural occurrence. This is an earthquake that God instantaneously, spontaneously created on the spot for his purposes. And there was a huge, massive earthquake that occurred. Why? For the angel of the Lord descended from heaven. So this, an angel, actually a couple of angels, came down from heaven and poof, came down to the grave of Christ. And when they did, a huge, massive earthquake happened. And no doubt that earthquake probably unsettled the earth and shook that stone out of the way, not to let Jesus' body out, but to let eyewitnesses, these women, into the tomb, to witness the empty tomb. And that's exactly what happened. Behold, a severe earthquake happened. An angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled away the stone. The angel did. Then the angel sat up on the stone. The angel's appearance was like lightning. In other words, it was bright, glistening like the sun. His clothing was as white as snow. He was sinless. He was pure. He was a good angel of God straight from heaven. Verse 4, it says, The guards shook for fear of him. So these guards that were set there by the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were there to guard off the apostles, they heard the earthquake, they saw this angel, and they fell over like dead men, literally unconscious on the ground in front of the tomb doesn't say anywhere that these pagan guards or these unbelieving guards saw the resurrected Christ. All it says is that when they saw the angel, they fell over like they were dead. And they did. The guards shook for fear of the angel. They became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, so the angel starts talking to the women there, and he says, do not be afraid. So these women, when they first got there, they were afraid. Everything that they saw, they probably were just afraid to go see their dead savior, Frightened maybe by the consequences of the earthquake if they felt it at all. Frightened by the supernatural beam, uh, being gleaming like the sun, an angel. So they're actually shaking with a healthy fear. And the first thing in care for them is he puts them at ease and says, Do not be afraid. Do not fear. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. How did the angel know that? Because they were messengers of God and God knows everything. And they were looking for the crucified Christ. They thought Jesus would be dead when they saw him on that day. And verse 6 says, He is not here for He has risen. He has risen. He is alive. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the living Savior, isn't He? It's not who was Jesus, it's who is Jesus. He is not here. He is risen. He is alive. Just as He said. Jesus predicted His own death. He wasn't a helpless victim who was overcome by circumstances He couldn't control. Jesus planned His own death in eternity past, announced it all throughout Old Testament history for 4,000 years that He must die and also that He must rise. And even pronounced it during the course of His ministry publicly, the first event 
that he ever did three years prior when he turned water into wine and publicly in the temple. He told all the Jews and especially his critics, destroy this temple and in three days, destroy my body. Kill me, if you will. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Virtually everybody there did not know what he was talking about. It wasn't until he rose again from the dead where the light finally went on for the apostles, especially for John. Oh, that's what Jesus meant. He predicted his own death and resurrection. He is alive. He came alive. He rose from the dead just as he said. He said it many times. Uh, Just prior to this, a couple months before he died, he pulled the apostles aside and told them, okay, we're going to Jerusalem. I am going to be betrayed. I am going to be arrested. I'm going into trial. I will be crucified. I will die. And then they panicked and freaked out. And then Peter grabs Jesus and starts shaking him. And then before Jesus hardly can say, and by the way, I'm going to rise again from the dead. They didn't hear that part. It didn't sink in. But it was part of what he proclaimed. He predicted he would rise again from the dead. One of my favorite scriptures is in John chapter 10, 17 and 18, in the middle of his ministry, where he publicly announced to all the crowds that he had been healing and feeding and ministering to. And he told them at the the top of his lungs, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I willingly take it up again. No one kills me against my will. If I die, I die because I chose to. If I die, I die because I planned it. And I will take it up again. I will raise myself from the dead. Isn't that amazing? No man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I willingly take it up again. And that's why Jesus could say in the next chapter, I am the resurrection and the life. I have power over physical and spiritual death of every human soul. He is risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying, say the angels. Go quickly and tell his disciples after you get an eyewitness account that he's not here, that he's risen from the dead in fulfillment of prophecy. Go tell the disciples and go tell his apostles that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he's going out ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you so, says the angel. So here we have firsthand testimony, not just from humans on earth, but from a supernatural divine angel from heaven, a plurality of witnesses, by the way, because there were more than one angel. There were two angels confirming this truth in the testimony of two or three witnesses that Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus, who is he? He's the suffering servant. He's the hated judge. And he is the living savior. Another great truth answering the question of, Who is Jesus? Look at verse 8 and 9, Matthew 28. So these women obey. They look. They don't find him, and they run back, and they tell the apostles. They tell Peter. They tell John. Verse 8, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, fear and great joy, and they ran to report it to his disciples. So all they've seen is an empty tomb. They haven't seen Jesus yet. And as they're running on their way to see the apostles, it says, and behold, get this, on their way in obedience to the angel, the women who are running back to tell the apostles, Jesus is risen from the dead, haven't even seen him yet. They're interrupted and look who appears. And that's why it says, behold, you'll never, this is amazing. And behold, the women are running. Jesus met them, poof, out of nowhere. The resurrected Christ appeared to these blessed women. And behold, Jesus met them and he greeted them. He had great love for these women. They were true, faithful, loyal disciples of his. And get this, they were so overcome with joy. It says, and they came up 
And they took hold, they latched on, they grabbed Jesus. They bent down and they just grabbed and latched onto his feet like they were never going to let go. Probably kissing his feet profusely. Well, what does this tell? This tells us something important about Jesus. Jesus' favorite term for himself when he referred to himself was son of man. That's what he called himself, son of man. That was a term taken out of the Old Testament, particularly Daniel chapter 7. It was a prophecy of the coming Messiah that the Messiah would actually be a real human being, 100% human. Jesus, who was eternal God, when he came down and was born of Mary, he, he was the eternal God who became a man. He became human. That's called the incarnation. He became a 100% human being, everything just like us, save the fact that he was not born with sin and he never sinned. He was the first, the only perfect human being there ever was. And as the son of man, he was a human being. And what that meant was he took on a human body. He took on a physical body. He lived in that physical body that was just like ours, except it didn't have sin. That physical body got tired and got hungry. And that's how Jesus was, even though he was still God in a physical body. And that body had no sin. His body was subjected to death. God died. Isn't that, that's unthinkable. God died in that physical body. Although Jesus' soul never died, his spirit never died. That physical body that Jesus had was put to death. Jesus had to be 100% human in order to be our perfect substitute for sin. That's why. He had to be the Son of Man. He had to be 100% human so that he could identify with us in all ways as the great high priest interceding for his people. This is such a great and important truth. So who is Jesus? He is Son of Man. He was 100% physical as a human being. And we know that it says they took hold of His feet. There are some religions that try to tell us today that yes, Jesus was crucified and Jesus rose again, but He didn't rise again in a physical body. He rose as a spirit. He rose as a phantom. He rose as a ghost. But after He rose, He didn't have a physical body. Yes, He did. They grabbed His feet. Jesus had a physical, supernatural, glorious resurrection body. It was physical. It was made of Flesh and bones. And Jesus said that in Luke 24 when he went and showed his apostles and his disciples. He said, look at me. I am risen from the dead. Touch. Feel me. I am flesh and bone. So Jesus was raised in a physical body. It's a supernatural, glorious resurrection body. And get this. Today, Jesus exists in heaven still in a physical body of flesh and bone. He's 100% God. He is still 100% man. He is the God man. And he is the almighty, eternal, infinite deity of the universe is somehow confined in the glorious resurrection body of Jesus Christ still that is made of flesh and bone, albeit supernatural flesh and bone. And when Jesus returns someday, he's going to return gloriously as King of kings and Lord of lords in that physical, glorious resurrection body. And get this, will reign all through eternity in his glorious resurrection body. It's amazing. Jesus Son of man, with that great truth, because Jesus has this physical body, took on this resurrection body, was raised in this resurrection body, and will continue in this resurrection body, that is, therein lies our hope of the resurrection. Paul says this in Philippians 3, to all Christians, to all believe in Christ, because Christ died and rose again, for our citizenship is in heaven. That's really where our residence is and where we reside. Our citizenship is in heaven, not on this earth from which also in heaven we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. And when he returns, what will he look like? Verse 21, when Jesus returns, he will transform the body of our humble state, this fallen, lowly, dying, decaying, wretched body that we have now. 
He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, of his resurrection, physical, glorious body that he has now. Isn't that amazing? If you're a Christian, you're going to have that supernatural, glorious resurrection body someday that will supplant the one that you have now. This is the great truth of the Christian. This is the good news. This is the gospel. We look forward to the resurrection. We live in light of the future, in light of eternity when Jesus comes and changing our lowly body after the pattern of in the conformity of his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The resurrection is the great hope of the Christian. It's the good news. Jesus is the living Savior. He is the Son of God. Then it goes on, the end of verse 9. They took hold of his feet and it says they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Go down to verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Two times in this text, in the resurrection body, there were believers, there were saints who literally fell on their face, bowed the knee and worshipped Jesus Christ as the God-man. Who is Jesus? He is worthy of worship. Who is Jesus? He is deity. Who is Jesus? He is God. That is probably the single solitary truth about Jesus Christ that the world wants nothing to do with. They want to reduce him to a man. They worshipped him and Jesus accepted their worship. Verse 10 goes on. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren, the apostles and the other disciples to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. And now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city. So these guards came to their senses after being passed out, got up, remembered what happened. Oh, wow. Did you see that earthquake? Whoa. Did you see that guy that flew down from heaven? Those two guys? What were those? And these guards are scared to death. And what do they do? They panic. They're going to go talk to their superiors that assigned them at the grave. And that's the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders. So that's why it says in verse 11, So while they were on their way, some of the guard who were at the tomb came into the city and they reported to the chief priests all that had happened. See, they're telling the priests, well, here's what happened. There was this earthquake and there were these two guys and they were shining like the sun. And then the next thing we know, we woke up and we were asleep on the ground and the body was missing and the stone was removed and we don't know how it happened. So they repeated that story. Verse 12, chief priest's worst fear came true. Jesus' body was gone on the third day. And when they had assembled with the elders, consulted together the Sanhedrin to come up with another concocted false lie of a plan, In resistance to Jesus, they gave a large sum of money. They gave a whole bunch of money to these guards to bribe them to lie, to undermine the truth of Jesus and his resurrection. People are still trying to do that today. Lie and cover up the truth of Jesus' resurrection. Verse 13, and they said, here's what you are to say. Here's the lie we want you to propagate. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. You know that? People still use that today. The world famous atheists that argue in defense of atheism, they still use, that's their main argument. Well, the the body was stolen. Can you at least get a new argument? Because we know that's not true. We've heard it for 2,000 years. And we know the origin and source of it. You were to say that his body was stolen away. Verse 14, if this, and if this should come to the governor's ears, pilots, we will win him over for you and keep you out of trouble. Verse 15. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And we're bribed. And this story has been circulated even in the days when Matthew was writing this and still circulated even today, 2,000 years later. Unbelievable. Let's go on to the rest of the story. Answering the question, who is Jesus? 16 to 20. 
Jesus is sovereign king, not just the suffering servant or the feared and hated judge. He is the living Christ. He is the son of man. And he is also the sovereign king. Verse 16. But in contrast to these doubters, but in contrast to these liars trying to hide his resurrection, the apostles are going to embrace his resurrection. But the 11 disciples, minus Judas, Judas killed himself and went to hell. So the 11 apostles are left. They proceeded to Galilee in obedience to Jesus, to the mountain which Jesus was designated, probably a familiar mountain where they met Jesus many times and were taught by him and prayed with him and heard him preach sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. So they had a rendezvous place where they would continue discipleship with the risen Christ. Verse 17, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. What an amazing sight. Seeing Jesus, we believe that by this time they'd already seen him a couple of times. The innermost apostles had seen him at least three times by this time. Thomas has seen him at least once already, the doubting Thomas. And here they see him again because Jesus was appearing and disappearing in his resurrected body. He wasn't staying with them all the time. And so here he appears to them and they're overcome with joy and awe and amazement. And they literally fall on their faces and bow down and they worship Jesus, which is appropriate. He is the God man. Get this. But some were doubtful. That, that is amazing. That just speaks of the fallenness of humanity or how weak we can be. Some people believe that if we just have enough, amass enough empirical data, then everybody can be saved. If we just see it, if we just see it, if we just see it. Well, the apostles saw him repeatedly and some still doubted. That's how weak we are. God, I believe, help my unbelief. Prayed that dear saint that I can identify with so much. They worshipped and no doubt some of the ones who were worshipping still doubted. Do you ever doubt in the midst of your worship? I do. This is our human condition, but God can overcome our doubt with faith and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Word of God. And so when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. In verse 18, Jesus came up to them and he spoke to them. Notice he accepted their worship because he was the God-man. And he says, all authority, all authority. And that's why I say he is the sovereign king. Not just some authority, all authority, universally, past and present, created and all that is created, what is seen and unseen, all authority over heaven and earth. This is a universal statement Jesus is making. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And it doesn't mean that he's had authority for the first time now. It's the authority that he shared in eternity past with the Father and the Holy Spirit now has new guidelines, parameters, and fulfillments in light of his life, his death, and resurrection. It takes on a very specific purpose in terms of his ministry as the second person of the Trinity and the Savior of the world. And now the Father is rendering and resting all sovereign control and judgment to Jesus Christ, his appointed and designated Savior of every human soul. And Jesus predicted that moment would come in John 5, said this very thing. All authority finally has been entrusted to me by the Father in my obedience to the mission the Father gave to me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he tells his apostles, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, of all people, regardless of where they were born or their ethnicity or their gender or their age. It means all people. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Go, therefore, go what? Go and preach the gospel. Go give them the good news. Go tell them about me. Tell them about their sin. 
and why they are lost and why they need a savior and what the solution is. The good news, Jesus, who's the only one that can save. That's what that means. Go preach the gospel, make disciples of anyone who will believe. And then when they believe you baptize them, that identifies them into the church, the church of God, the church that Jesus said he would build and continue to build and that the gates of hell would never overcome. So Jesus is sovereign over the world and Jesus is sovereign over the church. Jesus is head of the church. Baptism is a term reserved for the church, Christ's bride, the local church, baptism. Jesus is the head of the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. No human is the head of the church. Ephesians says Jesus is the sole head of the church. He's the sovereign head of the church. Go and baptize them. Do it in my name. Do it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By the way, in verse 19, it's the singular name of. When you baptize somebody and they believe, they believe in the singular name of the triune God of the universe. Singular. The name. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The name modifies all three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying He is one with the Father. He is one with the Spirit. God is triune. We can't understand it. It defies our understanding. But that's the reality. The Father is equal or is one with the Son. Baptize them in the blessed name of the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Verse 20, and when they hear the gospel and when they believe and when they are baptized and then they're added to the local church as Christ builds his body and then when they become a Christian for the rest of their life, they need continual teaching and continual teaching, feeding and edifying and growing. That's discipleship and it goes on all of our Christian life until the day we die to go and be in glory with Christ where we are perfected. And that's why verse 20 says, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, everything in the New Testament that was written down, everything in the Bible that God has given us. And how long will it take us to learn these things of everything Jesus commanded? It will take a lifetime and more. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is the sovereign king over the world. He's the sovereign head of the church. Also amazing. Jesus says, I am with you always. How can Jesus be with everybody always? Because he is omnipresent. Isn't that amazing? An attribute of God. He's the omnipresent one. And he says, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus is the eternal one. We can just go on and on about the attributes of who Christ is. And that is our blessed Lord and Savior. Jesus is the suffering servant the feared judge, the living Savior, the Son of Man, the Sovereign King, the Head of the Church, the Omnipresent Lord, and the Eternal One. With that, if you could go to Philippians chapter 2, I want to close with this. This great truth and great reality that really summarizes and distills the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection for all people, not just for Christians. This divine commentary in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So have this attitude. Well, Paul's addressing the heart. You don't have right religion by doing external things. It's not tradition... It's not actions, it's not things you do, the amount of times you go to church, the good deeds you amass in a pile in your life, it's an attitude. It's the inner man and God is addressing the heart and the mind. He's speaking truth. Have this attitude. He's checking our perspective so that we might understand properly with the right attitude and right thinking about who Jesus is and what he did and our proper response to it from the inside. 
have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, and literally in the Greek text, although he was God, even though he was the eternal, uncreated, invisible God of the universe and always has been uncreated, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. In other words, he, he agreed to the plan among the Trinity to come down as the creator God of the universe and to subject himself in humiliation, to take on a lowly human body, to be the sacrificial substitute for sinners that they might be saved. That's how he humbled himself. Some translations say he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of any of his attributes. He humbled himself and took on a human body. Somehow the eternal God of the universe squeezed himself into a confined human body. Don't know how that was possible. And he did that. He took on the form of a bondservant of a human being, of a lowly human being. That And being made in the likeness of men, he was just like you and me. He can be our perfect high priest. He was just like you and me. No matter what you're struggling with or suffering with, he identifies with it. He understands he also was a human. He was subjected to that, yet he did it without sin. He's our perfect high priest in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man for 33 years, he humbled himself by being a servant, by seeking to seek and to save that which is lost, by seeking to come and serve people and not be served. He humbled himself in obedience to the Father, subjecting himself to death. So he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the worst kind of death known to man 2,000 years ago, reserved for the worst, most heinous criminal. Death on a cross. And for this reason also, God highly exalted him, raised him from the dead. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus raised himself from the dead. The Father raised him from the dead. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. And as the risen one, God the Father highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Get this, verse 10. This applies to every person in this room, whether you're a Christian or not. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Every knee. For those who become Christians, that knee is bowed in this lifetime. We bow the knee. We cry out, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I embrace you as my Lord and my Savior. Save me. And we begin to bow the knee now in this life. But there are others who won't bow the knee in this life. But you know what? They're going to bow the knee. They're going to bow the knee in the, in the next life, guaranteed, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every knee. Many people are resisting Christ with a fist in his face. That fist is going to turn into a bowed knee in the future, in eternity. They'll bow the knee because Jesus is worthy of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, this isn't just humans, this is angels as well, good and bad. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father because Jesus is risen and alive today. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed, is he not? And those of us who know him, we have the opportunity to worship him as the living Savior. And those of you, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ personally. You still have time. You don't have a, a Savior who's looking down on you in anger if you hear His voice and hear His truth. Actually, He's got His arms open for you as a loving Savior to embrace you, to forgive you of your sin, to embrace you and transfer you out of the darkness and into the family of the beloved Son, Lord Jesus Christ, to call you one of His own, to call you a saint, a holy one, 
to put the Spirit of God in you to be your comforter, to adopt you into the family of God with other believers, to secure for you a sure eternal future in heaven with the Father and Jesus for all eternity. How glorious is that? And someday being reunited with your saved soul in that glorious resurrection body that Christ lives in today as he reigns on high as King of kings and Lord of lords. With that, let's go ahead and pray to the King of kings together. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for Resurrection Sunday. God, what a wonderful gift from you to give us this perennial annual reminder of this historical event that really interprets and defines human history. The most important event in the history of the world, enshrining the most important person in the history of the world, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, we thank you for coming down to this earth, becoming the God-man, humbling yourself to become like one of us, humbling yourself to be willing to be a servant of sinners, humbling yourself to be willing to go to the cross and be executed, although you did nothing wrong, humbling yourself to absorb the Father's wrath for sins that we committed against you. Thank you also for your amazing power and how you rose yourself from the dead in glory. And thank you for your grace as you extend it to us now as sinners. For those not saved, wooing them and calling them to be saved and embraced by you, forgiveness of sin. And your grace towards those of us who already know you, calling us your own, your children, secure in you forever. We praise you. We love you. We thank you. We celebrate this day in your honor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.